Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Brees. Episode 3 Curriculum for Wales and Working Class Pupils with Jess Danum. Welcome back everyone to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching. We have got uh, an episode today where we are showcasing the research of one of our esteemed colleagues in the Cardiff Partnership who works with us as a subject mentor for the PGC secondary programme. Her subject is history. For reasons of ethics, we are going to anonymise her school. She's going to tell us who she is. I am going to allow her to speak in a moment, but we just want to sort of position this episode and just to let you know that we're not going to be mentioning um, the school but we are going to be giving you an overview and some insights from the fantastic research that she's done into her specific subject in the context of curriculum for Wales. How so exciting we're in a secret location. I know. <laughs> in a bunker somewhere. I know, I know. I see, we're just adding to the drama aren't we you know me. Okay so I should probably let her introduce herself actually. Um, welcome to the podcast tell us who you are and a bit about your background. Thank you. So I'm Jess Dainham. I'm a teacher in South Wales. I'm in quite a working class area of South Wales. And I've done a little bit of research into working class education and what that might mean for history um, and in the history classroom. A bit about my background. So I grew up in a very working class area on a council estate in the, I think it's the top 10 most deprived area of Wales and went off to Swansea University. Uh, from there, decided to go and do a teaching course uh, in Oxford, did my PhD, and I spent four years teaching in inner city London um, in Bermondsey, and I've been back in Wales for four years now. Welcome back. <laughs> Thank you. A lot, a lot is going on, yes. as, as uh, your introduction to this assignment <laughs> outlines. You came back to a whole world of reforms. Wow. So. It's we we love having teacher researchers on the podcast because we work closely, as you know, with student teachers, with newly qualified teachers, and they're really keen to see that there are expert practitioners who've been teaching for a while who are doing research, who are finding the time to do research and research that's really close to practice. So. Really important question to ask, first of all, is tell us about the sort of context and the rationale for this particular study um, and why it was so important to you. Yeah, so I'm currently undertaking a master's in um, learning and teaching through Oxford University again. And my big, big focus primarily was working class pupils and their experiences in school. I think it's something that uh, as educators, we've known about the attainment gap for a very, very long time. And I think when I went into teaching, first of all, and I went to teach in London, which is a very different environment, very high stakes, very pressurised. I kind of assumed that that's what all education was like. And what I was met with was an awful lot of very driven, ambitious children in very deprived areas. And that would be for a whole host of reasons. You know, there's lots of elements that go into that. Lots of them were second generation immigrants, which does have its part to play. But also I think the proximity to success that they saw every day, as well as it was an academy that I taught. So a very much high stakes, pressurised environment. So when I came back to South Wales I naively thought okay well that that's what education looks like and I came back and I started to see that actually it's a lot more what I experienced when I was um in a very working class primary school a uh, secondary school sorry in uh, South Wales 
So after kind of two years back here grappling with Crickland for Wales which when I came back I didn't know what was happening I didn't you know it was very much shut off in the little London bubble and then the pandemic hit and then I had a baby and whilst in maternity leave I thought oh now's now's the time to go back and and actually do some research into this which I'm not sure if that was the right time but it's the right time now and and it refocused on that idea of right the children that I teach day in day out the children that will be in the school that my daughter is now in, even though, and I'll get on to talk about um, working class in just a minute, my daughter probably will not be deemed working class, uh, but the people she is with will be. And I really thought about, you know, what is fair in education? What is right by the children that we teach? And as a history teacher, am I doing really the right things for them? So that was kind of my proposal when I started my master's. I said, I want to improve my teaching practice, particularly for working class children. So I did. So I started it, started my research, realised there's a lot that goes into a master's course. But it is fascinating, really fascinating. And I would advise if you have the time, energy, commitment to do it, definitely. It is it is good for your practice. Well, congratulations for all of those things. You listed a lot of, yes. of, of big things there that really deserve a lot of congratulations. So Bringing it back into the context of this study now, you you did have some quite specific questions to ask because of the context of reform and curriculum for Wales. Um, And I would wager, and I know from having read this study, that you had some concerns, particularly for working class children, because of the reforms and what that could mean for those working class children. And so you had to sort of craft this study to address some of those concerns. Yeah. Am I right there? Yeah, absolutely. I think if you look at some of the statistics and research into working class education, um, I think there was one study that was done in Scotland on five-year-olds just before their curriculum for excellence came in. And they looked at the average child in Scotland, five-year-old child in Scotland, and then their family backgrounds. And they saw that Children with university educated parents had a vocabulary that was six months beyond that or above that of um, uh, their average child and 18 months above or beyond or however you want to describe it. Children of parents with no qualifications whatsoever. So children are starting off on a bit of a back, back foot. And then if you look at the statistics as time goes on, we can see that, you know, Children who are then sitting in their GCSEs, free school meals is the, a big determiner of this, but free school meals children have a massive attainment gap. The most recent set of CD, so you know, the centre assessed grades, a non-free school meals child, 33% of them got A stars and A's by their teacher assessed grades. And only 12 or 13% of free school meals children did. So you can see here that there, there is this big gap that doesn't close. And then in terms of the Welsh context in particular, there was one study done by Welsh government, I think it was in 2014, that said a working class child in Wales was 50% less likely than their English counterpart to get five A stars to C grades, including English and Welsh, uh, English and maths, sorry. And I just thought that's shocking. That, that That is absolutely shocking. So when I do a bit more research into that then, and what the curriculum reforms mean is that it does seem to be putting an awful lot more pressure on individual schools and individual teachers to think about what's best for their pupils. And I think that's a question that's been asked for 60 years of educational research that I've looked back, and I'm sure it was before that as well. How can we close that gap? How can we make our education more fit for purpose, potentially, for working-class children? And 
it's a massive question for teachers particularly teachers in environments and teaching environments that are predominantly working class that have a whole host of other pressures and maybe not as much um, scope to be more creative or feel like they don't have the scope to be as creative with the curriculums potentially. And then I started looking at actual school systems and thinking about, okay, this may be a bit beyond what an actual class teacher can cope with, but, you know, the idea of setting and that the sets are predominantly working class children, they're starting school with a vocabulary that is, you know, maybe more restricted, so automatically have more time to catch up. So are more likely to be in the lower streams, more likely to be in the lower sets and and kind of the psychological uh, profile that they put on themselves then and how that restricts them. And Oh, I, there, there are just so many ways that our school systems from the offset don't give them the best chance. And then as a class teacher, I've now got new curriculum for Wales with lovely, exciting um, opportunities, which we will go on to discuss. But then to think, oh, I feel a lot of pressure now to get this right. And I think a lot of teachers that I've spoken to feel that pressure as well, I think. We've heard a lot as we've headed towards the implementation of the new curriculum. You know, we've heard a few... Notes of caution from different different angles, really. I mean, Lucy Crean talking about the, the potential problems for equity. You know, the, the, the gap between the haves and the have-nots is just going to get wider. You know, we've had Gareth Evans from over in, in Athrova saying that perhaps there hasn't been enough ambition in terms of qualification reform and things like that. There's a bit of a worry that the safety net is just getting ripped away mm. through the reforms. I mean, do you, do you kind of get a sense, I mean, this is just your personal yeah, opinion, I suppose, is, has reform been kind of too ambitious? Has it thrown away too many things and the baby with the bathwater? Is it not being ambitious enough or is it just not going in the right direction? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I think the the principles of it, I love. I love the focus on the child. I love the focus on the outcome of the child, not framed around exam results. I think my my personal worry is that because we don't know, these are sevens that are coming into us now, we don't really know what the Welsh government envision their qualifications or what that's going to be when they leave in year 11. And I think, you know, I've had a couple of talks with a few people from, you know, the curriculum, uh, what are they called? The people who are Cons- on... Yes, the con- yeah, the, like the con- um, and the consultation, the people who are coming in to help us. And we said, you know, but what are the outcomes? And they said, well, we don't need to focus on that right now. We need to focus on the children. And I don't know, maybe that's because the way we're conditioned as teachers to constantly thinking about the exam results. And maybe that's not right. Maybe it is right that we focus more on the child that we're developing and crafting. And I think I said that if we get this right, then the exam results will be good at the end. And I was like, but... It feels dangerously it self-indulgent sometimes when... when People who perhaps aren't in the yeah. midst of working class areas where there's multi-generational unemployment mm-hmm. and all that, you know, they're not, they're never going to be there with their kids and they can just say, oh, don't worry, don't worry, it's all going to yeah. be fine. I don't know. Am I cynical in thinking that's a bit self-indulgent sometimes? Well, sometimes I think it feels more high stake in working class areas. I think that there isn't safety nets that these children can fall back on or some of them feel like they don't have second chances at this either. So... And I think you do feel that working in, 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 like you say, in a working class school where we need to get this right now so that they can have the best chances because society outside isn't helping them. So we have to try and do it sometimes in school, I think. So I, I agree. It, it, it feels very, I don't know, hoping for the best. Yeah. Sometimes. And while I'm asking random questions for yeah, Emma, drags don't. us back on track no, again. Just, <laughs> I was just thinking that, you know, 
working class areas of Wales, you know, going way back, mm. you know, way back, there's a long, long history of, you know, self-improvement, the temperance movement, you know, the mm. idea that education is going to get you out of the mines or the ironworks yeah. or whatever it was, you know, long, long ago. What are the attitudes to education in in these sort of very working class areas of South Wales right now? I mean, is it seen as relevant? Is it seen as something to grab with both hands? Is it seen as as completely irrelevant? I, I'm just curious yeah. to know, really. I think as any, there's always that diversity. We have, you know, pupils who come from, you know, very working class backgrounds and they are very ambitious and they and they and they want to do well. And then you do have the pupils who don't see school as something that's for them. They, they don't recognize the relevance of a lot of their curriculum and they don't see how it's going to help them. And I think what you mentioned earlier about, um, you know, education, lifting them out of out of the mines. All my all the men in my father's side of the family were miners, apart from my father, who delivered coal for a little bit, but now now doesn't. So I do question how, you know, with all the, the history of education, how many success stories there are for that. I suppose in theory, myself and my sister are the quote success stories but there's still loads of problems that come with that isn't there and the, the way you recognize yourself in kind of as you what was called aspirations you know your aspirations and as you move up I mean there's a lot of problems there but I I think right now the pupils in front of me don't recognize the relevance hugely of everything that we do in school and for some they don't recognize any of the value but with new curriculum for Wales, I think that is something that we can address more and we are being forced to confront more than previously. I think we can't just, with curriculum for Wales, we are not really allowed to just say, this is what we've taught and this is what we will continue to teach. And I think that's right. I think we should be looking more at how are we making this relevant? And that was part of, of my research. How do I make history more relevant for the pupils that I teach? And um, something that, uh, we sort of come back into land now in the context of of secondary history in in your p- particular um, context. Something that struck me though that came through in the literature and that you emphasise so well in your analysis was a tendency to, for whatever reason, obscure or omit or just not seek the vo- the actual voices of working class people in trying to understand the inequalities that they experience in education and these sort of detrimental impact of 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 living in a, in a socially deprived area or being classed as working class even that the notion of working class you sort of grapple with in in your assignment but you found that really important and this was really important to your study so how important then was it to you as a researcher that you seek the opinions of your children in trying to figure out how you make sure that when you're designing Curriculum for Wales, your response to Curriculum for Wales and History, that their voices are heard? And what kind of ideas, opinions did you want to get from them? I think, yeah, I think that's a really good point to raise, actually. When I first started my research into, you know, why is it then that working class children don't achieve? Because I can find loads of information that they don't achieve, but the the why and the solutions are a little bit more slippery. And a lot of the research that I found, one being a study in, by Lambeth Council in 2010, the kind of the key factors that they put out were parental engagement and parental aspirations and that schools need to try and tackle that. And they were, you know, they were, they recognised other factors, absolutely. But th- those seem to be, and, and the other literature that I did, that seemed to be the main argument put forward. And I had a conversation with my my uh, my mentor, my, my tutor 
in the university and I was like this it doesn't feel right I come from these backgrounds yes I recognize that sometimes my parents may not have known the avenues for me to take or understood maybe the connections that I might have needed to get to places and, and you know I do remember sitting with my maths homework in your nine and my mother saying well I can't help you with that yeah, ask your sister ask your old sister um so maybe she didn't have necessarily the uh, skill set helped me with that but to say that she wasn't engaged in school or didn't have the aspirations I think isn't isn't fair and I think that yes okay there might be a minority of of parents that feel like that but particularly since I've had my daughter I can't, I don't think there's many parents out there that don't want their children to succeed and don't want them to do well in school I think they they've had so there could be cases where there's been bad experiences from school or like I say they don't have the the skill set or they don't feel like they have the skill set but I think it's unfair to place most of the blame on on the communities that these children come from and even if we are going to say you know the well you know the the problem is the parents they don't they don't seem to want to push them hard enough well then you have to think a bit more deeply about well what are we doing as from a school's point of view so I think I was then directed into a study by a, a researcher called uh, Diane Ray who has done she's from a working class background as well um, she's now a teacher educator and she's written a few articles and written a book and that focused far more heavily on the voices of the working class and I found that was almost like a breakthrough in my research where I just thought this feels more right I don't know if that's the right word but it just felt more right and as someone who's grown up in a working class area it felt more true to my experiences I think so I think actually getting to hear the voices of our pupils is hugely important and I and, you know I did read in my research that so often we as teachers and curriculum developers sit around tables with other professions, which is fabulous, and we collaborate with other teachers, you know, and other uni and universities can, can do their links in. But ultimately, we just talk to adults. And how often, if we're honest, do we sit down with pupils and say, what works for you and what doesn't work for you? And take on board their thoughts. So my research did then, um, did then think, right, we need to speak to the children about this. Um, so what I did use, I did a bit more research, and there was a relevance of history measurement scale that has been put forward by um, some Dutch researchers, Van Straten et al. have kind of gathered this together. And there's, there's a series of questions and it fo they focus on personal identity, on understanding human condition and becoming an active citizen. And I just thought, wow, this actually links quite a lot to what Curriculum for Wales want people to become. So I used that as a research tool and I put it out to all our year nine pupils and it was just a questionnaire where they had to agree and disagree on a light guard scale. And then there was areas for comments at the bottom. And actually what I found is that many of them kind of thought history was quite relevant to them. That they did think that it helped them, you know, and this is in my school context, obviously, but they did they see that it helped them understand the news a bit better, for instance. Or they did think that it helped with some of the language that they heard outside school. But then the broader questions of, do you think history might be relevant to you? Those are the ones that dipped. So the, maybe that's like a rationale thing that we need to work on. I, I'm not sure. Maybe we need to convey that a bit more. But to hear their voices was really interesting. It was actually a lot more positive than I was expecting, if I'm honest. And then I did some interviews then. We've got a student parliament in my school. So we did some interviews with pupils who could then get to share what their thoughts were on our the provisions that we provide. And yeah, they really engaged with it. They, they, they wanted 
broader history. They wanted more history. They wanted diversity in there. They wanted big ethical questions. They wanted, you know, Napoleonic wars. I saw Greek. Yeah, Greek they, they really wanted to range. Just everything, didn't they? Basically, they just said, "Teach us everything that you don't already teach us." <laughs> okay, um, but that was so just. Not what I was expecting. I, I don't know what I was expecting, but this this thirst, this hunger for different stories. And I did also, again, I can only speak for this context, but I, I found it quite interesting their their take on Welsh history as well, and how they thought that the type of Welsh history that they were given was kind of the same history over and over. And I've got to say, like when I think back into my Welsh, my my own history education, and I think about the type of Welsh history that I learned, and you know, like as I mentioned, my family is very coal mining heavy in our background. But I feel like we learned about the coal mining and we learned about industrial revolution. And oh, and this this will not be a, a comment on my teachers. I'm sure they did teach me more, but that's all this I seem to remember. And then you know, I went to university, and I and I suppose I had exactly the same thoughts of these as my pupils today where I just thought I don't want to learn about British history I want to learn about other history so I learned about Russian history and American history and and then I focused on prisoners of wars from around do you know what I mean looking at the the social history aspect of it and I was a teacher I think do I know enough truly enough about Welsh history to give them the diversity and the the different stories that is contained in Welsh history to, to my pupils so I think hearing their voices really made me think about my own subject knowledge and thinking about where the gaps in my subject knowledge is. I don't know that much about Asian history, if I'm perfectly honest with you. That's not something that that's something I definitely need to go and read up on. But my pupils want it. So that's something I need to go and do. They want a variety and diversity of the Welsh history that right now I don't necessarily have. So I need to go and do that. It also, I think, raises questions, though, on working teachers, full-time teachers, hearing these responses from pupils, wanting to honour their desires and their wants and their wishes, and then thinking, I need to find the time to go and do this. I need to find the time to go and research this. And I'm sure other subjects feel it as well. But as history, history is endless. It is so broad. It is impossible to know everything. And I think as teachers, do we get enough time to just develop our subject knowledge we focus a lot on pedagogy, on, you know, big thinking, how, how we're all knit together as a school. But then where's the time in my school day to go and learn about the moguls in more depth or to learn about, you know, the diverse voices of the immigrants coming in in Cardiff? When, when do I do that? And I think it takes an awful lot of personal discipline in a teacher's, from a teacher's point of view to go and find the information that the pupils are asking for and then collate it into lessons that is accessible. So... Listening to the pupils was really, really, really important to me. And I think it's equally important that I actually act on what they've said. And that can feel quite daunting as a history teacher. And as as I say, I know history is not alone in having a vast knowledge base to come from. But yeah, it's a big... Big. Yeah, it's interesting that you're kind of busting this this myth that the pupils are not interested in the world and not interested in in history and all that. And it makes me think that, you know, you've made this other point uh, in your work about the idea that there's this assumption that people want to use education to escape. And it's kind of bound up, isn't it, that all the pupils are interested and all the pupils are interested in the world, but maybe they don't want to escape. So maybe that's why 
it's not the narrow conception of what you should be teaching that people maybe assume it is. Yeah, and I also think it does have to come back to the idea of relevance. So we are developing our curriculum now and we're focusing a bit on year eight curriculum at the minute and we are making some big changes. And through my research, I did also read on how to make history more relevant. It questioned the theory of how pupils learn about older history in year seven, so maybe the Norman Conquest, Tudors in year eight, and then the 20th century gritty stuff that, you know, we assume, I'll say we'll assume that every child wants to learn about, the wars, the protest movements, the um, that's reserved for year nine. So if you're asking in year seven, is your history curriculum relevant? they're probably more likely to say, well, no, it's about Normans and stuff that, even though I say that that is quite relevant to our society today, they may not see that. So in year nine, we are actually thinking about changing our curriculum massively and looking at big breadth studies of 700 years and looking at a theme. So I think one of our first would be changing power, for instance. So they'll get to see that over 700 years. And then some death study where they dive in a bit deeper at certain stuff. And just to kind of layer up the history that they've got. Because like you say, they want to know about the world. They want to know about different time periods. Because I, I did mention the geography of what they wanted to learn. But as you said, Emma, in my study, they wanted to learn about Greek history. They wanted to learn, you know, they wanted to learn about medieval history. They wanted to learn about all kinds of time periods and locations. But how you fit that into a two, three-year curriculum is very hard. Um, our answer to that would be, let's give them variety in but maybe over a breadth mixed in with a depth study here and there. And it's going to be very much a trial. It's very different to what I've ever taught in the eight years of teaching, I think. But that's kind of where we're going, I think. Gosh, you've you've learned a lot. You've covered a lot. I'm, I'm just curious here, and I wouldn't want to sort of perpetuate some kind of deficit perspective here about teachers now, not, not about pupils. But it seems to me that, had you not done this research, perhaps you wouldn't be able to, to the extent that you have, bring so much richness to the curriculum design that you're doing right now, as you've just described it. So I suppose, like, what, what role has research played and, and what does that mean for the profession? And how is that potentially going to be a good thing for curriculum design and, and what we're tasked with? And are there any problems with that? Because, I mean, you're doing your master's. I'm sure you found it incredibly difficult to fit that in amidst <laughs> the day job, but it's obviously paid dividends. So what are your thoughts on what that means for other teachers out there? I, yeah, I, I was listening to one of your podcasts um, that discussed this about the equity of, of learning experiences. And you are right. I, I'm, I'm doing my master's. I love learning like I wouldn't be doing this otherwise I, I went back into my master's as a way of finding something for myself um, which actually took up a lot more of my time so I had less time for myself in some ways but I love that and I love the learning and I love reading history books and I love thinking about it I love talking about it with my colleagues I know that not everybody feels that way about learning new histories or reading up on research into different types of pedagogy or curriculum mapping and I think we are in quite a small school with quite a small department and next year will be myself and my head of department and as you said I've done a lot of research which makes our job somewhat easier and I've also built connections through my master's with a lot of other teachers who are also doing curriculum design. I do question what it means for the schools where you don't have either the time 
the resources or somebody who is that driving force to do that and I think if you're not fully engaging as a department in genuine research into curriculum design genuine research into current for a history department current historiography around topics if you don't know where to find that information but you've been given this task I I think it could be quite problematic for many pupils and usually inevitably it will be the working class pupils that that do struggle the most then and I do feel for staff like you say in the departments that aren't engaged with research maybe for whatever reason they're not doing that usually time I would say is often the case how they must be feeling right now how overwhelmed they must be feeling with the case you know the, the task they've got in hand and also a couple of years down the line in working class schools if it doesn't go right where's that accountability coming back to if, if as a staff you've been told, you know, you design the curriculum for your pupils, you are the experts, which I will argue we're maybe the experts in our pupils if we talk to our pupils. Are we the experts in actually designing curriculums? Have we been trained in that? I'm not sure. Um, Do you feel like you have been? If you hadn't done the master's? No, absolutely not. I think I, I've been teaching eight years, so not a huge amount of time, but I'm not a newly qualified. And I think my training was good. I got taught how to design good lessons and inquiry questions, but whole massive questions about curriculum choices. I'd have a good go at it. I'm not sure I was appropriately trained to do it right. Um, no. And then I think, is there others that feel like that still? I think so. I think there will be. Mm, I might be about to give you an impossible task now, but okay. let's, let's try it anyway. I mean, yep. let, let's, you know, obviously you've, you've managed to do this master's at Oxford, which must be wonderful, you know, very <laughs> great, great thing to be yeah. able to do. I mean, we, we've nicked all sorts of bits of Oxford teacher <laughs> education model. We occasionally get to speak to some of their academics and it's always an absolute privilege to do that. We're very lucky. Let's assume there's a big bunch of teachers out there. Um, let's leave aside the ones that don't want to. Uh, and let's assume that there's a lot that would like to do some of this kind of stuff that you've done, but probably not going to get to do an Oxford Uni Masters for 101 really good reasons. If you could distill down the absolutely sort of core, vitally important things that you've been able to do or been you know, taught to do or have done... And we're able to say to a fairly hard-pressed department, right, start with that. You know, you're not going to get to speak to the boffins at Oxford, but start with that and you'll be, you'll be on the road. What would be those things that they just need to get on and do? I, I do. I know they're hard-pressed for time, but I do think they should be engaging with research out there. I think like BIRA, uh, so British Education uh, Research, have some amazing articles. They did a whole, um, and they're 20 pages long, so... You know, you can read you can read them. They will take you some time, and they're not very heavy, as in you know they're very accessible um, articles on curriculum for Wales changes. That 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 is there for them, and I would say read it. I would say as a history history specialist, we've got teaching history articles which aren't always focused on you know what you need to do exactly in Wales, but if we're thinking about mapping skills and developing key concepts like significance or interpretation or you know causation, which is all in our curriculum for Wales, you know. They've got ready-made in kind of eight pages somebody's research on how to map those skills out there. So I think it's hard, but I really think that we should be as departments and as a profession being encouraged to genuinely engage with research out there. I think that would be my number one. 
my number two, the thing that I've really enjoyed about the course and that I would be encouraging if you can is to talk to people outside your school, if you can. And I know we're so hard pressed for time, but I know there is a move to look towards clusters talking more. But my experience is mostly at heads of department level. Heads of departments get together and they talk to each other. But by doing that, you're almost leaving out the rest of your staff, particularly maybe younger members of staff who have probably the most up-to-date training at least, who sometimes are a little bit, can be very enthusiastic. I'll put it like that. I won't say more enthusiastic, but they are very enthusiastic often. And by them not getting involved in those genuine curriculum design and big questions those talks outside of our school environment then you might be missing a whole other trick you might be missing a whole new perspective so I think yeah if you can find the time to engage in genuine research do it read it it won't take too long it it, is thought-provoking though isn't it and try and involve all the staff in the discussions with outside of the school Because I think it can also be frustrating for some members of staff who want to get involved and can't or don't feel like they can as much. So I don't don't know if that answered the question as much, but those are the two things. Those are my two bits of advice anyway. It's funny to think, isn't it, as we we come to this subsidiarity model where we're all supposed to come up with something locally relevant. And obviously you have said, you know, listen to your pupils in front of you. The bit that people seem to forget as they look in at their own school is to look outwards more. Kind of paradoxically, the more we need to have subsidiarity going on, the more we need to be looking outwards. Yeah. And I and I think, yeah, you just get a bit of a spark, don't you? It's all about sparking conversations and discussions and unlocking ideas because I often think teachers have these like little seeds of ideas, don't they? And sometimes just sitting down and having an actual conversation with someone over a cup of coffee about something and you just go, oh, light bulb moment. Of course, that's it. And I've got a colleague in my school now who we spend a lot of time just talking which we're great talk we talk too much um <laughs> but you know those conversations can turn into really interesting discussions and at the beginning of the year so that my colleague is in her second year of teaching um she'd read the five by um Hallie Rubenhold who re-looked at Jack the Ripper and we do teach Jack the Ripper as a source analysis kind of uh, scheme of work she read it she was, she said you know her second year teacher and she said I, I think we need to change our scheme of work it's not historically accurate anymore I was like yeah I agree yeah I agree and she com- she completely rewrote our our scheme of work on Jack the Ripper to focus more on up-to-date historiography uh, focus on the women that were affected dispel some actual inaccuracies that we'd been teaching up until then about these women and I just thought those conversations are what trigger that and also just saying kind of I want to do it rather than sitting back and going I wish I could do it the I want to do it and then getting that from your colleagues I just think yeah so I think yeah involving as many people in those conversations inside your own school and outside is is really important and can I ask just to bring it right back to your study at what point and do you think there is a point at which you should seek the views of your pupils in that process is it when you kind of you're almost there with what you think you want to teach is it I know for you you looked at the statements of what matters with your pupils is it should it be happening now so that you can take those opinions on board when do you bring their voices in I think I think it has to be done early early in the process so that you know you can take on board their ideas and you can actually think will this work because I I I was I don't know if I can admit this I was quite skeptical of student voice before now because I've heard so many anecdotes of you know um well 
the children's wanted to learn about unicorns, so we taught them about unicorns. Uh, do, you know, do you know what I mean? And I, Horror stories, yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically this idea where we've taken student voice and gone, right, this is therefore what we must do. And I think there is obviously an element of professionalism in this where we have to say, these are the kinds of things they want to do. Let's make it work in an, you know, an academic and in a way that's going to work for them. So I think if you do that early on, get their views before you're properly cemented on what you want to do, before you do all that work. Because imagine doing a whole scheme of work and then finding out that actually pupils have no interest in it. They hate it. They don't, they don't, it doesn't resonate with them. Kind of then you're like, well, you're going to carry on running with all this work you've done or are you going to change it? And do you know what I mean? So I think it has to be done early, as early as you can. And then I think, it, but then I do also think you have to do it again and again. It has to be cyclical, doesn't it? It has to be, you know, well, this is what we've put forward. What did you guys think? Hopefully you didn't hate it. Hopefully you liked it. But what can we improve on that? And I think that constant kind of talking to pupils, whether it be informally in the classroom, you know, what did, at the end of the topic, what did you think? Or whether it be a more formal whole year group survey like I did, it depends on your own context. But I think a constant stream of pupil feedback is what, what helps most, I think. Jess, congratulations on an absolutely cracking piece of work. And thank you very much for giving us, uh, you know, what what has been sort of a really deep discussion here about many different things, <laughs> um, not least a very specific aspect of curriculum for Wales challenge in the history context. And I think it's useful to hear from subject experts and, and subject voices coming through for, for secondary practitioners out there particularly. But I'm sure primary will be interested to hear in what you've got to say as well. Okay, um, I know um, from our email correspondence that you have done your homework and that you've got two um, recommendations for us. So you've got something interesting and something to try. Do you want to tell us that something interesting first? I think you hinted at maybe was it that book yes, that you mentioned is, yeah. earlier absolutely I think if you are sat listening to this and thinking I don't know enough about working class education maybe you do teach in a working class um, school maybe you don't but chances are that every single person will teach a working class child at some point. I think the book Miseducation by Diane Ray is fabulous it's really accessible it it charts you know, working class education, the history of it, to how people feel now, to, you know, even people who have, you know, managed to climb up that ladder, how they're feeling about it. I think as somebody who is was working class, it's a hard term, isn't it? Because I, I will always say I'm working class, but I, I don't think I do fall in that category now as much anymore. Um, but as someone who's working class, I found it really enlightening. And I found a lot of parallels of my experiences in that book. But I would say that probably many teachers aren't from working class backgrounds not in my experience anyway many of my colleagues aren't from working class backgrounds so if you really want to understand kind of some of the struggles some of the barriers what works for them I think that book is just a really good starting point in to understand them a bit more so I would I would recommend that highly yes. thank you um and something to try I mean we've talked about already but speak to the children <laughs> find a way to to hear their voices and to to find out what they want I think it's enlightening they're quite funny half the time with the way they tell you stuff that hopefully you can get a relationship where they are honest with you and to take that feedback though and actually work on it because the I think probably the worst thing you can do is listen to a pupil's voice and then not do anything with it because then particularly for working class pupils it perpetuates the idea of, well, what's the point? So I think, listen to your pupils, take on board the feedback that you can, act on it, 
And yeah, hopefully our curriculums will be a bit more relevant and will engage them and spark them and make them want to carry on. And yes, hopefully. Well, Jess Dane, and thank you so much for inviting us to your secret location <laughs> here in working class South Wales. It's been an absolute privilege. Um, and as we uh, pack up our wires and, and disappear back towards Cardiff from yes. whichever direction we're coming, <laughs> there's plenty of uh, food for thought for all of us there. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. We'll be back in your ears as always in two weeks time. You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. The special guest this episode was Jess Danham, who works in a school in a working class area somewhere in South Wales. And thanks to Jess for taking part. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blanford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. We're on Twitter at Talk Teaching Pod. We'll be back in your ears in two weeks time with something else interesting. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching.